Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Last week I gave everyone a list, right, of the four different views of interpretation of the book of Revelation, right? There was a variety of ways that faithful brothers and sisters throughout the history of the church have understood and interpreted the book of Revelation and how we can find unity among our differences. And we must have confidence, right, where we do stand about certain things, most of them relating to timing, timing-related issues. When are these things happening? When is the church gone? What is transpiring? What can we look forward to? And my goal every week is not to convince you of what I'm convinced of. My goal every week is to help us see that there is a God who is moving all of history towards his end goals that we can trust in and be utterly sold out for. And yet, for our text today, I do have to kind of lay my cards before you in some capacity. Because many people would see the text that we read just a moment ago of the fifth seal and the martyrs of the faith that are under the altar, that the church is gone. I do not believe it is. I think the church is still present. And this record, as we see before us, and I think they are there for biblical warrant from other texts in the Bible that we see, that the church will endure suffering until Christ's return. While I agree that the church will be raptured, that's very clear in the scriptures, I just do not believe it's here prior to this moment. I do believe that we can see in multiple times and multiple ways that the church will be raptured. Think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. This is that where we get that word rapture from, that we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. This is the rapture that we see in the New Testament. The, a term maybe you're familiar with, but maybe you're not familiar with. If you've been around uh, the church for any length of time, you've probably heard this term, that we will be caught up into the air with Christ and meet him in the clouds. This is where we get it from. But I do not believe the Bible describes two separate raptures. Two separate raptures. The first one being what some would call the secret rapture. Of the church, right? That if you're familiar with like the Left Behind series or some of these books where there'll be a, a time when everyone's gone and some will be left and not left, I, I don't think that's what we see. We will be raptured, church, and then I believe we will descend with Christ in that moment when he will establish his reign and his rule. Here's some reasons why I believe that. I do not see a two-stage rapture because this same word that we see here, to meet the Lord in the air, is used two specific times in the Bible. One of them by Jesus himself in a parable all about the second coming. Listen to Matthew chapter 25, verse 6 through 8. It says, But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Same word used by um, Paul in 1 Thessalonians. It says, And then then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Come, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and to buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. So it seems as if they went out to meet the bride, and then they came back with the bride to the very marriage feast that he was preparing for them. 
They didn't go hold or hang out for a little while. They came back directly to the very thing that he came to bring about. Yes, there would be other means and other ways that I could explain a variety of things, but it just doesn't seem from the scriptures that there is a two-stage rapture. But that, instead, the church will go through the tribulation. Seasons of massive suffering where Christ will preserve us. Not only that, but it also seems that when Paul talks about throughout the scriptures, when he talks about the resurrection unto reward and the punishment, that they're not different things, but they're simultaneous events. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. He says this, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as to us as well as to us. Simultaneously happening, both reward and punishment, not two different scenes. Yes, I know, you're probably not fully convinced. And that's okay. I'm not going to spend the whole sermon de- de- debating for that fact of when the rapture is exactly going to happen. But I need you to understand the way I'm going to preach texts that we're seeing before today as if we're still present, church. Because I believe this is the ethos and the passion of the book of Revelation itself. Maybe some would even say, well, what about what he said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, because you have kept my word and been about patient endurance, and I, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. But if you remember back in Revelation chapter 3, when we read that text, this keep doesn't mean pull you out of per se. It can have that connotation. But it could also mean exactly how John uses it in John 17 when Jesus is praying the great high priestly prayer. When he says, I will keep you from the evil one. Does that mean he's removing them from the world? No. But that he's doing what? Preserving, assuring they will make it through to the end. These are just some of the biblical texts that lead me to believe that the church will be present during the times of great suffering and hardships as we see in the book of Revelation. I would love to sit down and discuss more of this with you. If you're like, well, that's just different than the way I've always heard it. That's okay. Remember, we've talked about faithful distinctions that can both still be in line with the word of God. But more importantly than those texts is the drive of the book of Revelation. Let me ask you, if, if this was written to the early churches as the circular letter that it was, would they stop reading in chapter 4? Because they're gone. What benefit would it be to them? The text had to have been some type of benefit, some type of preparation. And yes, we could draw the character of God out of these texts, absolutely. And that would be extremely beneficial for them. But it seems like the ethos, the passion, the drive of the book of Revelation is this call to patient endurance. Do not compromise. Do not give in. Hold fast to your faith. And if we remove the church unduly, it seems as if some of that ethos, some of that drive of Revelation is lost. Not completely. believe Revelations was, was written specifically for the purpose of awakening apathetic churches who were on the verge of compromise. And so if we see that the church is raptured prior to this, then the urgency and the passion of this particular text seems to lose some of its punch. Instead, it would be this, 
I'm not there. Thank goodness. Instead of, oh, I've got to wake up. I've got to fight for what's right. Instead, if we're not here, we just go, what? I'm glad I'm not there. Do you see what I mean? The very ethos of the drive of the text is gone if the church isn't present in this scene. Instead, it's just a sigh of relief. Whew, I'm glad I'm not around. And you continue to maybe sit in your apathetic complacency instead of fighting the good fight that is stepping for you as a brother or sister. Yes, there are other New Testament texts that do this work. I'm not saying that that drive or that all people who believe the church is gone would simply sigh. I'm just saying that's one potential byproduct if we believe that. So for these reasons and and many others that I don't have the time to go through now, I do not see the church is gone in this scene. I do not believe we have been removed from the suffering as described in our passage today. So let's dig into this scene. The fifth and sixth seal. If you're a note taker, two points today. First point is this. Christians, fight now. For we know our rest is coming. Point two would be very similar. Christians, fight now. For Christ will judge the cosmos. So let's look now at first Christians, fight now. We've already seen, as we did last week, that the Lamb was the only one worthy, right, to open the scroll with its seven seals. And he opened the first four seals where we saw the horse of conquest, the horse of bloodshed, the horse of famine or economic hardship and death were all described. And in verse 9, we see what appears to be something else that occurs during this last days. The Lamb opens this fifth seal. Look there again with me in verse 9. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And it may be immediately saying, well, how does he switch? And I thought the seals were judgments. They are. Well, then how is this a judgment? Did you hear the cry? The judgment against the world at ease and rebellion to God is the cry of the people. How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? This is a a prayer of judgment against those who will not turn from their sins, but continue to persecute and even kill the people of God. And this is one thing we must understand. The mission of the church is to continue to the final days. And brothers and sisters, that means some of us may even be killed. Just two weeks ago, In the country of Uganda, a a place where we are very familiar with as one of the missionaries we support is there. A husband found out that his his wife and his two children converted to Christianity and believed in Jesus Christ. And he just hung them. Two weeks ago. No charge, no crime. And everybody in Uganda is saying, how long, O Lord, do you avenge the blood of those? It's a declaration of judgment against those in the hands with which deal so harshly with God's people. But look with me. Notice a few things about these souls, these martyrs, these who have been killed for their faith. Look again back at verse 9. Did you notice where they were? It says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been, in key word here, slain. Remember, John is seated in the throne room of God. He's been invited to come up and to see the unfolding of the story of history. 
And in this throne room, we see an altar. And this is a, a repeated phrase we will see oftentimes. Now, typically, when we think of altar, we think of what? The altar of burnt offering, right? Where the sacrifices were burned as, as a time and a season for the people of Israel. But there was another altar, the altar of incense, that was closer in the temple. It was in, in the, the holies, but not the holy of holies, but it led its way there. And it would seem this is the altar that's represented here. He is not saying that their blood or their sacrifice had any level of atonement. He is not declaring that their works were bringing about their salvation or the salvation of anyone else. Instead, it was a pleasing aroma to God. It was an incense. We could see this just by looking at a few other texts. Look at Revelation 8.3. Listen to it. It says, uh, the angel standing before the altar with golden incense, uh, with a golden censer and incense, offered with the prayer saints to God. In 9.13, we see this altar is before the very throne of God. So these killed believers' souls are under the altar, and their suffering and their sacrifice are a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God. And immediately we say, how could death be pleasing to God? Is that what is the pleasing aroma? Or is it the patient endurance and unwillingness to compromise with the world because their death actually declared Christ is of supreme value to me? So much so that you can take my life and it does not matter. That's what's pleasing to the nostrils of God. It's Christians who are willing to fight no matter what it costs them. This is what's pleasing to the Lord in this scene. But not only that, it reminds us, brothers and sisters, maybe you are in a season right now where you are suffering for your faith. Maybe you're at a crossroads at your work where you are being made to potentially sign or do things that are contrary to your convictions and the biblical principles from which you stand. And you're debating, do I give in or do I keep fighting for what's right? And this text would remind you, if you fight, God sees you, remembers you, and delights in you. So fight, brothers and sisters. For our fight is worth it. We see this, right? We see what they were killed for. We see it there in verse 9 for two things. For the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. For their testimony. For their clinging to Christ. Their unwillingness to compromise. Not to give in to temptation or idols or false teaching or any of these things. This text reminds me of Matthew 16.35 which says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose it, key phrase, for my sake. What does it say? We'll find it. This is what Matthew reminds us of and teaches us. And we hear echoed, it seems, here in the book of Revelation. This, this scene is meant to call some of us out of complacency. From the apathetic life we've been living and into the call to fight for what matters most. Now again, when you hear the word fight, I do not mean Put up your fists and go to war with those around you. That's not the way we understand fight in the Bible. Instead, think of how Paul would describe fight in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have what? Kept the faith. 
Paul was not willing to back down. I mean, we could read in 2 Corinthians, which is why we read from that earlier, of the times he was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. And he just said, but it's still worth it. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to hold the faith. And some Christians in certain categories would see, see, we just need to keep loving people. Yes, there's love absolutely bound up in this. But it's also, above all else, a commitment to the Word of God and to Christ's name. There's both boldness and compassion. What it seems as if we're declaring here is that you've been called out of a story of self-centered glory. We sing that, don't we? Because we follow the Lamb wherever He calls us to go. And we think about this, right? And you say, like right now, I would say, yes, I'd be willing to give my life. I would. Would I have the grace and strength to do it in the moment? I don't know. But I do believe what the Bible declares is that if I'm pressing into the presence of God, if I'm uh, communing with Him by His Spirit and His Word and among His people, and I'm doing the labor of love to serve and proclaim in the community around me, there may come a day when someone says, do you believe in Jesus or you're going to die? And I believe by God's grace and His strength, I would say, absolutely. And they'd pull the trigger and I would be under the altar with these brothers and sisters. This text isn't mean to go, whew, I'm glad I'm not there. It's meant to invigorate us as a body of Christ to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep on going. For your works are never forgotten. But we must understand our fight is not, right? It is not domination or domineering. It is instead denial and dedication. Maybe even unto death, as was these here. See, our mission mirrors the work of Christ. I think we see that in the word there. Look back with me at verse nine, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 9 again. Intentionally, the word here is used, slain. Did you see it? I saw under the soul of those who had been slain. And you're like, oh, I've heard that word, just not too recently. Who else has been called the one who was slain? Christ himself. And I think what we see is this intentional language, and it's reminding us that we do not have a different mission than Christ had. We don't have a different model than Christ had. Instead, we, like Christ, are bold, faithful, obedient, declaring, loving, serving, caring, announcing the kingdom of God. Our suffering for the sake of Christ, brothers and sisters, it's never pointless. It's always purposeful. We can neither tolerate the idolatry as seen in the early churches or in the modern day churches with the teachings of Balaam or Jezebel. We do not compromise with the world's agenda and we do not isolate ourselves from also engaging in a world that needs to hear of Christ. And this brings up a problem, right? Because here's where this text presses into you. Because you're like, yeah. But the moment we get to that moment when we have to really grind it and fight feels like this is not reality. feels like there's not really a, a heavenly throne room 
feels like all the weight of the world is pressing in upon us. And this is why I believe John is giving us this vision of heaven. Of those who have preceded us. Martyrs of the faith. Sometimes what we feel doesn't always align with reality. And sometimes it does. And Jesus wants us to know that some of us are in particularly discouraging moments right now. And you feel like your suffering is going to win. Or if it has this like orphan-like quality to it. And this text reminds you, no, it doesn't. Suffering doesn't have the last word. Even if you were to breathe your last, for the sake of Christ, it doesn't have the last word. And then we see, look at verse 10 now with me. Look at verse 10. We see these, the souls of those who are under the altar, and they cry out with a loud voice, Oh, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Woo! That doesn't sound like the prayer of Jesus on the cross or the prayer of Stephen when he was being martyred to death. Jesus is like, forgive them for they know what they do. And Stephen echoes that very thing and says, forgive them for... So are these guys wrong? Are they wrong in this cry of, Lord, avenge our blood? No. Not in the least, because this is a theme we do see throughout Scripture. For your name's sake, O Lord, the people of Israel would constantly cry out, avenge us against these other nations around us. Avenge us, O Lord, for your name's sake. Bring us back out of captivity. In the same vein, we see these souls crying the same thing. Oh, Lord, avenge us for your namesake. This prayer is not for revenge, but for vindication. But did you see the beauty of their prayer? Because this prayer, look how, it, look how they describe God there. They say, oh, sovereign Lord. It's not like they doubted God in their death. It's not like they said, well, I'm not sure if, if this whole death that happened to me was really part of your plan or not, so would you go about and vindicate? No, they, they completely trusted in the Lord. And they called him holy, perfect in all his ways, true, consistent in all that he does, faithful in all that he does. And this cry for resolve is one we constantly hear throughout the scriptures. How long, O Lord? And have you read the Psalter? David says this frequently and often, doesn't he? How long, O oh Lord, will your hand be heavy upon me? How long, O oh Lord, will my enemies and my foes be trying to eat me, devour me? And I know this can cause the problem that we talked about earlier, of our feelings in those moments versus the reality that we mentioned. But listen to the words of Jesus as he comforts these. Verse 11. They were each given white robes and told to rest a little while longer. How beautiful. These souls that seemed almost in distress, crying out for the vengeance of the Lord, they were reminded of two great things. One, a white robe was given to them. We've seen this white robe before. We'll see it again in the scriptures. We, we see it throughout scripture, this concept of purity. But as we also will see in Revelation 19, it's also a symbol of victory. 
It is a white robe as we see described as dipped in the lamb's blood in multiple occasions. It is reminding them, brothers and sisters, your death isn't what saved you. It's still Christ's righteousness, that which has saved you. But also don't forget this one whom you are clothed in his righteousness. He has risen from the grave and he is reigning now as king of kings. This white robe is to remind them of the fullness of Christ's work. Both his redemptive and forgiving work, but also his victory through his resurrection and ascension and his coming return. The rope offers assurance of the righteousness of Christ given to them. It reminds them of the forgiveness of their sins, but also of the victory that is theirs through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then they're called to rest. Man, talk about a loaded biblical word. Rest. When we studied the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, right, where we were commended by the author of Hebrews to strive to enter that rest. Sometimes that striving to enter it might lead us to our very martyrdom. But this idea of rest here is, guess what? No longer are they suffering. No longer is there struggling. And one day, there will be perfect peace upon the earth from which they just left. Rest. Rest, souls. Clothe yourself in this white garment, reminding you of the fullness of Christ's redeeming work. Your victory, brothers and sisters, is that one day we will find rest from our suffering. We will. There will be no more pain. There will be no more heartache. There will be no more flesh to fight against. There will be no more sin. And brothers and sisters, that is what we long for all flowing from the work and person of Jesus Christ. Do not see Jesus' delay here as indifference. Because we do see delay. Look there again with me at verse 11. They were told, they were given and told to rest a little while longer until the number is complete of those who must be killed as they were. Waiting is the call of the Christian right now. We are called to wait. Weary soul. Are you tired of fighting? Do you feel tired from holding your ground in truth? Do you find yourself weak and appalled at what you see going on around you? Do not give in. There's rest coming for you. Christians fight for we know our rest is coming. This text reminds us of that. It drives us to that reality. Do not give in at work. Do not compromise your faith. Fight with all your might. Live for the kingdom of God. Remember, you are part of a kingdom that cannot be seen. But we get glimpses of it like this right here. To stir us up. To remind us. To embolden us. To keep on fighting. But some of you in this room, you're idle right now. And this text serves one purpose. Wake up, fight. There is no such thing as an apathetic Christian. Those who have been sealed by God's Spirit have been called to a great purpose of making His name known. If your life would look exactly the same whether you believed in Jesus or not right now as if you didn't, then you've missed something. 
Our life begins to look different. Everything I do is for a greater purpose. Wake up, idle Christian. Wake up. So how long? How long will they have to wait? Well, it tells us that they will have to wait until the final race is done. We see that there in the language, that there are some yet to come. Brothers or sisters who would be killed. And I love this word here. Look there with me again in verse 11. Their brothers should be complete. There's a predetermined number. God knows the last martyr. God knows the last one, as we see in Hebrews, who will finish the race and we will all be ushered into the presence of God. It's not like God's up there like, oh, let's do two or three more, maybe. I don't know, I'm not quite sure yet when it'll end. No, he knows. He is carrying out his purposes and he is sovereign. And when that moment happens is when we will see his return. There is yet more to come, which means we need to count the cost of following God, because maybe it's you. Count the cost, brothers. Have you been challenged to count the cost when you took the waters of baptism and you professed faith in Jesus Christ? Like this may mean your death. Listen to Paul in Romans 8, verse 36. It says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Did you read that during your baptism? Your sheep. Now go be slaughtered. We've lost what it means to understand the cost of following Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's a fight. Not a fight of physical means with sword and weaponry. But it's a spiritual war that we are waging. And for now, these brothers and sisters have been called to wait. And so do we until that final one is complete. But I got good news for you. Listen to Revelation chapter 19, verse 2. There's some rejoicing in heaven, and it says, A multitude in heaven were crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitutes, we'll get to that later, who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. There's coming a day. It's not indefinite. There is a definite day when Christ will avenge those who were killed for his name's sake. But for now, we wait. Fighting all along the way. This question of how long, right, rings throughout this section. And for many... Many who await this, we, many who read Revelation, I'm going to have to do some thinking here, right? We're going to have to talk some, for a second, some not difficult stuff, but things I want you to think about. Typically, when you think of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, how do you envision them? Linear? Chronologically? Right, this is one way. Right, many who would see in the future interpretation... Right, would see this futurist interpretation we talked about, they would see it linear. Like one happens, then the next happens, then the next happens, then the next happens. It's very linear in its process. So that would mean that the first thing that would happen is these seven seals, and then sequentially, later on in time, we would see the seven trumpets, then later on in time, we would see the seven bowls. Chronologically speaking, 
Right? We would see these as timelines, each happening in a chronological order over what many would describe as a seven-year period of tribulation. There are others, though, that would see this and then interpret the seven, seal, the seven trumpets, excuse me, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven woes as cyclical. The fancy word is they are recapitulating. They're telling the same story three times from a different perspective. I'm one of those guys. I would understand this not to be a chronological outline, but a descriptive purpose of helping the church throughout all of history to know how we will make it to the end. And here we see the focus seems to be on the martyrs. And we'll see in the seven trumpets something different, and now we'll try to help us see that in a moment. So I would understand the sixth seal to be as the great preparation of the day of the Lord, the final day. And I see that for a variety of reasons. Look there with me at verse 12 as we see our second point. Christians fight now for Christ will judge the cosmos. This sounds like a fun word to say. Cosmos. The entire cosmos is beginning to be wiped away. Listen to the language of verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal and I looked and behold there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell on the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The entire cosmos is beginning to be wiped away. Six different images you saw there. Earthquakes, sun, moon, darkened. These are all very common languages and descriptions that we see throughout the prophets of what's described as the day of the Lord, the final judgment scene. We could look at Isaiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Joel and we could see this. And I'm not just talking about a few references. It's all over the place. And yes, they come at different times and are directed at different people, but each one of them in these prophets is describing the day of the Lord. And what do we see in all of them? We see earthquakes. And what's interesting is we see this idea of earthquakes happen not only in the seventh seal, but also the what? Seventh trumpet, but also the seventh bull. Almost as if it's saying the same thing three times. It's one way to understand it. We see the sun become black and the moon like blood and the stars fall into the earth. One of the things that's interesting is throughout the Bible, Jesus uses the, or God uses the, the moon and the sun. He says things like, as long as you see that sun come up every day, know that I'm faithful to take care of you. And at this scene, the stopping of the sun and the moon and the stars beginning to fall is the opposite. It's saying, I'm faithful to carry out my judgment that I promised for all of eternity. Seems as if the same type of language. The sky vanishing. Let me ask you a question. What do you, why do you roll up a scroll? What does it mean? You're done with it. And what does he say about the sky there? Look there with me. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. So he's going to roll up the sky, then unroll it again for later judgments. Do you see what I'm saying? Just the, the language of it just doesn't seem as if it's linear or sequential. It potentially could be as if it's a cyclical pattern. He's going to say the same things three different ways, all climaxing in what we will see in the final judgment of the Lord in the seventh seal. 
This is the beginnings of those pangs. Listen to just a few of the Old Testament passages. Isaiah 24, I'm going to list them quickly. So instead of trying to really just listen, just maybe jot them down, you can go back and read them. Because context matters with these verses. Isaiah 24, 19 says this. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunk man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it. It falls and it will not rise again. Isaiah 24 is all about what? The day of the Lord. Isaiah 34, 4. It says, all the hosts of heaven shall rot, and the skies will be rolled up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall. As leaves that fall from the vine, like leaves that falling from the fig tree. Very similar language to what we see John using here. Again, that context is of the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, verse 30. He says, I will show you wonders in the heaven and on the earth, blood, fire, columns, and smoke. The, sh- the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome what? Day of the Lord. It seems as if what John has done, and he does this throughout Revelation, is he compiles all of this prophetic language to say, I'm the final prophet giving the final word. It appears potentially this is the final preparation for the judgment we will see in the seventh seal. And I think he puts it here in the sixth seal because we just had the question in the fifth seal, which is what? How long? And what we see in the sixth seal, it's coming. Because look who he speaks to. Look who he speaks to. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free. Which, by the way, there's seven of those. And if you're familiar with how Revelation likes to use seven, it's a term in... Perfect, complete, whole. And all of them are doing what? Hiding themselves in caves and among the rocks, crying out, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. These are the very dwellers of the earth that we see them cry out for vengeance to be taken upon. And their prayer in the opening section of, verse, of the fifth seal, the entire dwellers on earth will be walked away. This is just a reminder to us, too. Kings, they can't save you. Great ones, or this idea has this idea of influencers, those who have influence. Guess what? They can't save you. Because what are they crying out? Crush us, rocks, please. We don't want to be in this scene. Generals, no military might. Not the rich or the wealthy, not the powerful, everyone, slave and free, anywhere and everywhere. People look to and for hope, but all they can do is say, crush us, crush us. All are hiding, all are crying out, save us from this great day of wrath and from him who is seated on the throne. So what do we do with this? I think, one, it helps to answer the question for those who are under the altar. How long? He's preparing them. There's coming a day where they'll be judged. But I think it also does this, brothers and sisters. Are you familiar with Psalm 30, uh, 73? Flip there with me. Psalm 73. I want you to look at it. it I'm not sure if I got it up there to Hillsman or not. I added this right there at the very end. My preparation. Look at verse 11. So this is a Psalm of Asaph. 
And he is uh, grieving and he's asking questions of the Lord similar to that of these people. Look with me specifically at verse 11. He says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So, so Asaph's looking out of the world. He's been following Yahweh, the God of the New Testament. And he looks out of the world. He says, how can God know? How can he understand these things? Look at these evil people. They're at ease. They've got money. It's all going their way. And he's beginning to what? Get into his little feelings in that moment instead of realizing what reality is. And what does he do? All is vain. I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would betray the generation of your children. He's all up in his feelings, feeling bad for himself because of the sorrow he's in. And what did he need to jolt him back to reality? He needed what verses uh, 16 and 17 say. What do they say? But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Brothers and sisters, are you like this right now? You've been given a scene in the throne room of God. And he says this, they have an end. Fight, finish the race. That's how this text drives us to finish the task at hand. As we look around the world and we see evil seemingly at ease, many people gaining riches through deception, do not be dismayed, for we too have just been taken to the temple of God. We've seen their end. And there's nothing in this earth that can stand against this day of the great wrath of God. Now, this is not for all of us here, but only of only those of you in this room who have repented of your sins and are clothed in this white robe of Christ. And so for those of you in this room, little ones to old ones, some of you may be apathetic in your faith, thinking you're saved. This is what awaits you if you do not repent. Mountains that shake. The sun that is told to beam no more. And a God that will judge you for your sins. So look to Christ. Plead with you. Speak to someone about the hope of salvation in Christ. But for us who have repented of our sins, look at that last question. Look at that last question again back in Revelation chapter 6. These are the people of the earth, right? They're crying out for the, the, the mountains to crush them. For the day of the Lord is coming. The great wrath is coming. And they say, who can stand I can. You can. Church, we stand in that day. We stand in that day, not because of our own works, but because Jesus has done enough. And he's clothed us in his robes. And he's sealed us by his spirit. We are not like the earth that says, who can stand? We stand boldly and say, we do, because I'm Christ's. Did Roman persecution in the first three centuries stop the church? No. It still stands. Did the push of Islam in the 6th and 7th century stop the church? No. 
It still stands. Did the Black Plague, when everyone was running, the church was running back to help in the 14th century, did it stop the church? No. It still stands. Did the rise of enlightenment and the age of reasoning in the 17th century stop the church? No. It didn't. It still stands. Will the changes in politics and nations and pandemics stop the bride of Christ? No. It will stand. So fight the good fight that is set before you. Endure the race, looking to the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.